0: Lord, I told thee, Undertaker, Undertaker, please drive slow for the body. We are holding, Lord, I hate to see her go.
1: Hello, my name is Tanya Marsh, and this is Death at Sec which literally means death and what follows. I'm a professor at the Wake Forest University School of Law in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm also a lawyer. I practiced commercial real estate law for 10 years before becoming a professor. And at Wake Forest, I teach property law and real estate classes, but I also teach decedents' trusts and estates and the only course in funeral and cemetery law in a U.S. law school. Whenever people ask me what I do, and I tell them that I research, teach, and write about the law of human remains, their first response is, ugh. And their second is to say, well, I've always wondered. America is a uniquely death-denying culture, which is perhaps why we know so little about what follows death. I don't mean in the spiritual sense, but in the physical sense, what happens to human remains after death in the United States? Well, death is sometimes tragic. Sometimes it's a blessing, but it's always inevitable. Death transforms a living human being, a person with rights and autonomy into something else. Tissue and bone, once animated by life, converted into an object of fear, a focus for grief, and a medical and scientific resource. A human cadaver is no longer a person, but neither is it an object to be easily discarded. Human remains occupy an uneasy position in American law, and their existence raises three fundamental questions. The first question compels our behavior and requires us to act. What, if anything, must be done with human remains? The second question circumscribes our behavior and discourages action. What cannot be done with human remains? The third question seeks to set normative expectations for our behavior. What should be done with human remains? These are questions that we will address in this podcast, and not only in terms of what the law is, but in terms of what we think the law ought to be. This means that we have to think a lot about things that most of us don't really want to think about, but I promise that it'll get easier. Confronting the reality of human remains and the social norms and laws surrounding them is both an unromantic practical exercise and a deeply spiritual one. I promise it'll be worth it. I want to start out the podcast the same way I start each new semester of my funeral and cemetery law class at Wake Forest, by talking about a series of real life cases that I think raise some of the fundamental issues that we'll be tackling throughout the podcast. And I thought it would be most interesting if my 17-year-old son, Liam Sherman, helped me out by giving his initial impressions of each case. So, we'll start with the case of Florence Whalen. In the spring of 2012, a woman named Flo Whalen discovered that she was dying. She wrote the following letter to her estranged husband Michael, her sister, who is the executor of her estate, and her 10 children. She wrote, I am writing this letter to all of you to let you know what I wish done with my earthly remains after my soul has gone hopefully upwards. I wish to be buried in Billings, Montana, which I considered my home when on earth. I spent 51 years of my life in Billings, and with the help of my dear husband, raised 10 beautiful children there. I bought a plot many years ago in Holy Cross Cemetery in Billings, in which to be buried and have paid for the opening and closing of my grave. I also have bought a casket made by the Trappist Monks in Piasta, Iowa, and they will ship it wherever they are asked at the time they are informed to do so. I know that you all love me and want to honor my final requests, and that's why I'm writing this to you. I just want all of you to know that this is very important to me, and because you all love and respect me, I know that you will see that my wishes are carried out." When Flo died a few months later, her sister instructed the local funeral home to transfer the remains to Montana in accordance with Flo's wishes as expressed in the letter and her will. Michael Whalen, Flo's estranged husband, instructed the funeral home to bury Flo in the local cemetery instead. The funeral director told both of them that he would hold Flo's remains until he received a court order resolving the conflict. So what do you think, Liam? What's your initial first impression?
0: I think this case is sort of a good representation of... People's possible misconceptions about what actually would happen to their remains if and when they die just because I think a lot of people and Certainly I did before you ever told me anything about this subject would believe oh, there's a will that must mean Automatically that that is going to happen immediately, but this case is showing that at least in the um, funeral directors eyes there was some about what should happen with the remains because even though the will specified one thing and the person who was supposed to carry out that will was saying to do that, the estranged husband was saying do something else and that seemed at least in that person's eyes a conflict.
1: Right, so there's maybe more uncertainty than people would look at. But what do you think about the value? So what's your first impression about Whose wishes should control? Should we do what the deceased want? Because, I mean, she, Flo was pretty darn clear about what she wanted. So, should we as a society value what the deceased want? Or do we think that funerals are for the living and therefore we would maybe prioritize what the husband wanted more?
0: I think you should definitely at least try and do it with the deceased once unless it is something that would put an unreasonable burden on, like, the next of kin or whoever had to deal with those requests. And I definitely think in this instance, since the person trying to do it with the deceased is is the sister who the deceased apparently had a close relationship with as opposed to the estranged husband who I mean, based on the fact that the husband is described as estranged, it would seem that the husband wasn't a massive part of the woman's life at this time. And it seems to me, at least, that it is odd that we would prioritize their wishes over the deceased's wishes.
1: Well, I think that you characterize this case uh, exactly right. It is, there's a lot of things that are odd about this case. There's a lot of things about this case that defeat our expectations or frustrate our expectations about how things ought to work. And we'll have an entire episode about the Flo Whalen case. Okay, the next case is about Sherman Hemsley, who's best known for his role as George Jefferson on the sitcom The Jeffersons. Liam, you've never heard of the sitcom The Jeffersons, right? I've
0: never heard of that sitcom. Oh, okay,
1: yeah. So Mr. Hemsley died on July 24, 2012 at the age of 74. And he left a will that named his sole beneficiary and the executor of his will as a woman named flora who is identified in the will as his quote beloved partner after his death a man named richard thornton claimed that he was mr hemsley's half brother and asserted the right to make burial arrangements flora opposed thornton saying that her close friend and business partner had never mentioned having a brother dna evidence produced during the trial proved that Thornton was indeed Hemsley's half-brother, but Thornton testified that Hemsley was the secret product of their father's extramarital affair and that the brothers did not call each other or exchange Christmas cards. Mr. Hemsley's corpse remained in the funeral home for three and a half months, pending resolution of the lawsuit. So, Liam, what do you think about this one?
0: I think that this is a case why you should just listen to whatever the deceased wanted in their will or whatever documentation they left behind, just because in a case like this, it would be hard for someone who did not have intimate knowledge of sort of the interactions between the parties. So I feel like as opposed to trying to figure out, oh, he was his brother, but how much of a brother really was he and like what kind of relationship would they have and who had the close relationship to the person. I think in this situation, you should just listen to what the deceased says. Cause otherwise you're just going down like a rabbit hole of trying to figure out who knew the person better.
1: Well, but this case is different from the Flo Whalen case because in the Sherman Hemsley case, he didn't leave any funeral instructions, right? He left a will and he named the executor of his estate as this woman Flora, but he never said what he wanted to have happen to his body and he didn't expressly say that he wanted Flora to take control of her remains. So does that make a difference? Does it matter that Flo told us exactly what she wanted to have done with her remains and we could say that a value that we'd have is to honor the decedent's wishes but then what do you do in a case where a person doesn't leave arrangements i them?
0: think that kind of speaks to the necessity to like sort of organize your affairs like bef- at some point before you die just so you don't have to cause all of these sort of stresses on other people but i feel like in this situation if the person's already saying like this is the person i trust to deal with my estate and deal with all these things and never mentions the half-brother who he i mean it was unclear if he, from what I heard of it, if he knew the brother or not, but he at least didn't regularly contact him or talk to him to any extent. So I feel like it would be a little bit odd for anyone to go, oh yeah, the almost complete stranger to him who's technically related should have custody over his body or control over his body, as opposed to the person who he is, the deceased has already expressed enough trust toward to have them manage his estate.
1: So then the question comes up, okay, who ought to be making that decision? So Mr. Hemsley's remains were in cold storage for three and a half months, right, while they did a DNA test and they argued about this in court. But how do you tell how close a relationship was? How how is any decision maker supposed to resolve a dispute between this quote-unquote business partner or beloved partner and this half-brother that the partner didn't know about How's a decision maker supposed to resolve that more quickly or using fewer resources than they did?
0: It's hard to be able to ever answer, I feel like, with anything regarding the law just to say use common sense because you have to have some sort of like applicable rules to multiple situations. But I feel like there needs to be someone who can just say the deceased obviously didn't really know this person and why would they trust them to deal with these Arrangements, as opposed to the person who they have already stated that they had at least a large degree of trust for and described as their beloved. So I feel like you can't really say just have someone who would use common sense, but you kind of just need someone who would use common sense, I almost feel like. Okay. I know that's not a very legally correct answer, but that's sort of...
1: Well, no, that's cool because this whole podcast is about, it's not only about the law, it's about the ongoing dialogue between social norms and the law. I mean, the law in a democracy ought to reflect what our social norms are, right? And so it ought to reflect our values about what we think ought to happen. And so one of the tensions that we have in the whole law regarding human remains and the way that our social norms translate into this decision-making is we have this tension between what we call bright-line rules and equitable rules. Bright-line rules are really cheap and easy to administer. They put a line in the sand. They say, if you're the father or the husband or the wife or the sister or whoever if you if you play this role if you have this title then you win those are bright line rules sometimes bright line rules work out just fine sometimes bright line rules create uh, a great travesty of justice right equitable rules say well we're going to weigh a bunch of factors like who did the person trust and how strong were the instructions that they left and you know what were relationships like Equitable rules result in more fairness, but they're very expensive and time consuming to try to administer. So one of the questions we have to make as a society is how much do we care about getting the right outcome in the most cases? And how much are we as a society willing to pay for that? Because having a three and a half month long court case, as in the Sherman Helmsley case, takes a lot of resources. The Flo Whalen case went to the Iowa Supreme Court and her remains also sat in cold storage while they tried to adjudicate that. So those are both cases where we had equitable kinds of rules, right? So these are, these are questions we're going to talk about a lot, but it's all about the ongoing conversation between social norms and the law. Okay, you ready for the next case? Yeah. Okay, next case. I call this one the Freeloading Brother. So Frank McKibben, who was a widower and a father of seven children, died at the home of his daughter Madeline. Six of his seven children coordinated to make arrangements for their father's funeral and burial. The seventh, Robert, refused to contribute. Madeline filed a lawsuit to compel Robert to contribute his pro rata share. So what do you think about that? Should the son be required to kick in to help pay for his father's funeral, or should the six siblings that agreed to do it bear the cost themselves?
0: I think that it's kind of unreasonable to force someone to contribute like, quote-unquote, their share to the funeral costs because, A, some of those siblings could be wildly more successful than the other ones and could be much more able to pay. Like, say Robert didn't have the financial sort of status to be able to afford that because if there's one thing I've sort of learned by just, like, listening to you talk about all this law stuff is that funerals are really, really expensive. And also, I feel like you can't know the... at least a court can't really know the intricacies easily of the relationship between, say, Robert and his father or whatever, so it could be that that one child had a terrible relationship with their parents and didn't want to have anything to do with them and was trying to get that out of their lives, and then all these siblings are suing them to try and get them to pay for this. So I feel like you shouldn't be able to compel someone to pay for funerary, I mean, but also, on the other hand, I feel like, If Robert did have a good relationship with his family and if he did have the ability to pay, I mean, come on, dude, pay for your section of the funeral. But I feel like it's dependent on sort of the circumstances of... I feel like you shouldn't sue the guy to try and get him to pay for the funeral and you shouldn't be able to compel him to pay for part of it just because you he could have reasons not to.
1: So you think he has a moral obligation to pay unless he has sort of a compelling reason otherwise, but that's the kind of thing that you'd prefer not to see the law deal with.
0: Yeah, I think unless he has either like a financial reason he can't or sort of, a bad relationship that is preventing him from doing it, I think he...
1: Has a moral obligation. Yeah, I
0: think he has a moral obligation to just, at least if all of the rest of his siblings are doing it, I think he should contribute to that. But also, I feel like that's not something that the law should necessarily take over just because that's sort of a nuanced subject that involves... Like, I feel like it's hard for the law to rule on sort of, like, family relationships between all these people and there could be a lot of factors there that can't easily be like coordinated and described and talked about in a court
1: yeah i mean fair enough right so there's got to be a limit to how deeply the law can dig in um to our relationships and to these kinds of questions right so part of what we're going to talk about throughout the podcast and different episodes is what the limits of the law are and what what we feel comfortable they are Okay, so I call this next one, Should Evil People Be Buried Too? When Terrell and Sarnaev, one of the alleged Boston Marathon bombers, died in a confrontation with police near Boston, his uncle took custody of the body and a funeral home in Massachusetts agreed to prepare the remains for burial. The uncle and the funeral home both complained to the media that no cemetery in Massachusetts was willing to bury Sarnayev's remains. The government of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Sarnayev resided, issued a statement that Tsarnaev could not be buried in the public cemetery. Protesters outside the funeral home called for him to be, quote, returned to Russia, unquote, or fed to the sharks. Eventually, a cemetery in Virginia agreed to accept his remains, and Tsarnaev's remains were removed from Massachusetts in the middle of the night. Liam, should evil people be buried too?
0: I mean, I think just you should bury anyone who wants to be buried or the next of kin wants them to be buried. On basically for two reasons one is I think you have to try and be more morally upstanding than people whose actions you condemn because even when people do horrible horrible things like what he did you still have to like you still have to act better than they did and try and give everyone a burial I mean you don't need to have a massive ceremony for someone who did horrible things but you should at least bury them I would imagine that it is probably illegal to feed the guy to sharks and then he wasn't Russian, so I don't know why you'd send him back to Russia. I think you just practically need to do something with the body, and...
1: Yeah, I, th- I think sharks prefer live people over dead ones. I think
0: sharks also probably prefer live people over dead ones. And I feel like you just, just bury the guy and don't have any ceremony over it and don't make it something where people will, like, memorialize his tombstone or anything.
1: Well, just- but, that, but that's part of the question, right? I mean, so the cemeteries that refused his remains had two objections. One of them was they didn't want his gravesite becoming a shrine, right? Yeah. Or a place where people would come and vandalize it. So they didn't want the cemetery to be sort of the center of negative activity that was directed at his actions, either to glorify them or um, to protest against them. Yeah. The second objection was that no matter where you put him in the cemetery, he's going to be next to these nice, normal people who never expected that they would be buried next to an infamous mass murderer. Alleged infamous mass murderer. Yeah, right. And so is it fundamentally unfair to them to be Located for eternity next to this notorious person
0: Yeah, I feel like on some level this might just be my opinion of everything and I understand that people with different like beliefs and opinions will Share differently than me. I just think at some point it's a just practical matter of we have a corpse We need to do something with the corpse and a person who is Already dead in the ground is not going to resent the fact that a corpse was buried within certain distance of them I think the family of a different deceased person could for some could reasonably be somewhat annoyed By the fact that an alleged mass murderer was buried near their loved ones, but I also feel like I mean you have to just bury the body somewhere at some point or do something with the ashes if you cremate it or something and you can't just Like, it just becomes a practical
1: issue at some point as opposed to a gigantic moral sort of spider web. Gotcha. So your answer to my question, should evil people be buried too, is yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay,
1: Okay, how about this one? Here's my question. Who's the victim here? Uh, Peter Lara was an apprentice embalmer in Lancaster, California. He removed approximately 125 gold crowns from human remains in the possession of the funeral home where he worked. He sold the crowns to pawn shops for $50 each over a period of two years before he was arrested. You agree that should be a crime?
0: I think that's, that's not ideal. Not, <laughs> not <laughs> ideal.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. I think we can all agree that's not ideal. Crime?
0: What? I would say it's definitely amoral if he did it without like the family's consent or anything. But like obviously he took them and sold them in a pawn shop. What were the families I don't know, my thought would be like
1: what were the families gonna Well the crowns were gonna be buried. The crowns were gonna be buried. Well of course. I mean right, you're buried with all of your dental I mean this so this is kind of like obviously what he did was really bad and it was a crime and he should be punished for it. But part of it also is like who, who did the harm actually occur to, right? Yeah. Because we bury valuable things with cadavers all the time. Yeah. There's a lot of gold in many people's mouths.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the victim in this scenario is the family of the deceased because they could definitely feel like the corpse was violated to some extent because this person was extracting dental implants out, which is not ideal
1: again with the not ideal okay well that what you have just pointed to though is i think a really fascinating question that we're going to probably end up talking about a lot on the podcast which is if a cadaver a corpse is desecrated if it's treated poorly right etc then who is harmed is society harmed yeah is the dead harmed are the family members harmed because determining who's been injured helps us figure out who ought to be able to sue yeah. and who can get remedies. And of course, the dead may be the injured party, technically, but they can't ever get any you know, recompense.
0: Yeah. I also just feel like, I mean, what he did was definitely bad, and I think he should definitely be tried or sued to some capacity for that because there should be some punishment for doing something screwed up like that. I also feel like, whenever people talk about like corpse desecration, I feel like it's a lot of weird gray areas because a lot of people have corpses embalmed and that just from my limited knowledge from again, my mother like learning all about this stuff. I mean, that is a nasty process that like, if described to you, you, without someone saying this is embalming, if someone just described the steps to you, you would say, why would you do that to a dead body? That's gotta be some form of desecration i mean well it
1: is funny that you say that because for a long time the common law thought that autopsies and embalming were desecration of human remains and they had to change the law in the 1800s when embalming became popular and i mean i'm not like
0: against autopsies but i think to some extent like What we define as corpse desecration depends on the intent of the person doing it, the mindset of the person doing it, and the expectations of the family of the deceased or the relative or the friends of the deceased.
1: I'll listen to you defining all these equitable considerations. Okay, here's another one in that gray area that you just identified. So, human remains are cremated at temperatures of 1600 to 1800 degrees, and artificial joints made of titanium, like hips and knees, do not melt at those temperatures. So a number of companies offer metal recycling services for these and other metal byproducts of the cremation process. As one provider's website advertises, contributors of crematoria materials will be given the option of monetary compensation for their time and efforts, or donations will be made to the charity of their choice. And by the contributors, they mean the funeral homes. So,
0: Oh, the funeral homes get the money
1: that's how many of these Uh, recycling services were set up the family nowadays the family consents but if the family consents the the funeral home somebody's going to get paid right we're recycling titanium but
0: if someone has like a hip and you cremated them you can't put that in an urn right like i'm just trying to think logistically a hip is larger than an urn is yes
1: logistically you are yes yes logistically you are left over with these metal parts that can't be cremated, that, as you say, don't fit in the urn, and they have value. So yeah. the question is, who should get the value? I
0: mean, I'm 100% behind like recycling all that stuff, because there's a limited supply of a lot of these metals in the world, and I think pro-recycling all the way, and if I ever got like a robot knee or something in the far distant future, I would be all good with someone melting that down and making it into a coffee mug or whatever, I don't know. But like... That
1: is very random. That is
0: very random, but... I think that either I can see why the funeral homes would get at least some of the money because they are actually putting an effort of, like, A, dealing with titanium parts when they're cremating and, B, like, sending them off to the person. But I think there should be some sort of split between the family and the um, funeral home. But I also feel like some families might think that that was sort of in bad taste to be like, I'm not saying I would think this. I'm saying I think there could be people who would think it would be, like, in bad taste to receive money from the implants of the, like, beloved family member who died. So I feel like it's good that they're recycled, but there maybe needs to be more consideration and had to divide up the money. And the charity thing is definitely good, but I think it should also potentially be, like, the family's choice. Like, do you want funeral home to just take the money do you want to donate to charity do you want any part of the money is this going to help you cover the funeral expenses of this person right yada yada yada
1: okay so how about this one a seller offered a quote genuine authentic real human uncut skull for sale on ebay for the buy it now price of one thousand dollars
0: <laughs> i would say cool not cool or not cool. i would say not cool but also society has like weird opinions about human remains depending on like how old they are like there are human remains in Natural History museums and stuff from like thousands of years ago do and you think stuff. you
1: should be able to buy a skull on online
0: probably not but I mean they're like mummies in Natural history museums and we don't like see that as potentially morally outrageous and i've definitely well, seen some people do Some people do but i think the vast majority of the public is just like oh it's a mummy we're studying it we're studying the culture but then if someone did that to like your great great grandmother everyone would be outraged so i think I would say not cool and I think society has differing views depending on the person's actual relationship to the deceased.
1: So you think it matters whose skull it is, how long they've been dead? No, I'm it's saying dead. I
0: think society thinks that matters and I think society has a lot is a lot more comfortable with someone who has no potential, like not just familial but like cultural relationships to the living, because I think it's a lot easier to say, like, sort of antiseptically, like, we're doing this for study, and this is a 3,000-year-old body from some country far away, as opposed to, like, this is someone we dug up in rural Kansas, and they died, like, 60 years ago, and we're If someone said they're, like, studying the culture of Dust Bowl Kansas by digging up bodies... Like a lot of people would take offense to that, but people are fine with someone doing that from like a 3,000 year old dead body to study the culture of that time period. Yes. So I would say no to selling skulls online, but also society sort of needs to make up its mind as to what it's okay with.
1: Boy, society has to make up its mind about a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about. Okay, here's another twist on that one The Indiana Medical History Museum collection includes brains and other organs of 2,000 former patients who died between the 1890s and the 1940s at state institutions and whose remains were autopsied. In December 2013, David Chase, a 21-year-old resident of Indianapolis, broke into the museum's warehouse multiple times and removed jars of human brain tissue. Why? (laughs) (laughs) He sold six jars containing human brains via eBay to a man in San Diego for $670. The buyer noticed the jars had labels that indicated that they were the property of the Indiana Medical History Museum and contacted the police in Indianapolis.
0: Who's paying six hundred and seventy dollars for chunks of brains and formaldehyde?
1: A man in San Diego. I guess. I mean But he called the cops. So He did call the know.
0: cops, so I think that's good on him. But Applause what if,
1: him. but what if so this kind of goes back to your whole issue about de individualized remains in museums. You talked about mummies. I'm talking about a medical history museum. These these two thousand patients died between the eighteen nineties and the nineteen forties. Yeah. There are jars with their names on them. Yeah. That are, you know and they died in the state hospital. Mm-hmm. It's questionable whether or not there was any consent for the Yeah, I was going to st- say, if
0: it's the 1890s, I think there's a lot of gray area as to whether or not those people were told, like, we're going to chop out your brain and let elementary schoolers gawk at it a hundred years later.
1: Here's the last one. A mysterious figure known only as Leatherman roamed through New York and Connecticut in the 1860s to 1880s. You may be familiar with Leatherman because of the Pearl Jam song uh, about this gentleman. Leatherman did not speak, but his travels adhered to a strict pattern. No one knew his real name or where he was from. Some speculated that he was French, others that he was autistic. When Leatherman died in 1889, he was buried in the pauper section of the Sparta Cemetery in New York. Into the 21st century, Leatherman's story remained a focus of local interest and in tourism. In 2011, the local historical society sought to learn more about Leatherman's identity and petitioned a New York state court to disinter Leatherman. Their request to the court asked to disinter him, quote, for the purposes of expanding the historical record, testing, including, and limited to forensic gross morphological evaluation of the biological life history of decedent, to be performed within the cemetery without the destruction of the remains, after which the testing of the remains will be reburied, a CT scan of the skull for the purposes of three-dimensional imaging of the craniofacial features for a reconstruction of the decedent's face without the destruction of the skull, after which testing the remains will be reburied, and DNA testing of a molar and or fragment of large bone, preferable from the femur and weighing approximately four grams, which will involve the destruction of such dental and or bone tissue submitted for testing so as to determine the decedent's ancestry, and stable carbon isotope and trace element analysis to determine the diet of the decedent, which will involve the destruction of such dental and or bone tissue submitted for testing. So,
0: Liam? I mean, like, I think this just sort of goes back to the People seem to have a lot less of an issue with remains being dug up if they have no connection to it or if they're curious about it than, like, if it's actually has some sort of cultural or, like, biological connection to them. So I feel like that's a case where, I mean basically the only party that would be harmed by that I think you could say is like society in some extent because if we're digging up human bodies is there a sanctity and like burial but I also feel like
1: well and is there a social contract right yeah so are are we as a society going to respect the in interment of other people so that our remains um in return will be respected after they've been interred, or do we even care about that I mean, yeah right because
0: like i would say i mean in all honesty if someone in 400 years would like who was liam sherman's life like in the year 2018 what what did he do if someone wants to dig up like my skull in 400 years and put it in a museum sure i'll be in a museum i don't really care about that But I feel like other people- Sweetheart,
1: that's adorable. I feel like other people
0: might have very (laughs) different opinions on that subject depending on, I mean, like, your cultural beliefs or your religious beliefs if you believe in, like, literal resurrection or anything like that. So I feel like it's just sort of, it's a touchy, complicated subject because it's sort of dependent on what we as a society value and what the individual's beliefs are because... I think you have to think about who's harmed and who's benefited in this situation. And the benefit would be increased scientific knowledge of this time period and sort of this one figure in the time period. And I think you have to figure out who's harmed and in what capacity they're harmed. And I think the easiest thing to say, cause you can say the dead body's harmed, but the dead body can't really experience harm. So I think the easiest thing to say is harmed is social norms and social institutions. But I think again, we sort of need to, as like a society figure out what we're okay with and what we're not okay with because It's really just sort of subjective and weird.
1: That is absolutely the bottom line, not the subjective and weird part, although that's true too. We as a society need to figure out what it is that we're okay with and what we're not okay with. So all of these cases that we just briefly talked about, and if you want to find out how they were all resolved, um, we'll talk about them later on in future episodes, but if you can't wait that long, you can go to the website, death. Etsec, that's E-T-S-E-Q com and click on the read the show notes and you can find uh, the little descriptions of each of the cases and then information about how they're each resolved. But each of these cases sort of talks about or the, sort of the, the, at the heart of it are social values, right? What does our society think is the right thing to do? What should be done with human remains? What shall we do with human remains? What can't we do with human remains, right? The limits on our... Uh, on the interactions between the living and the dead. And we've got to figure out what the answers are. And I think, thank you, Liam, for helping sort of think through what some of the tensions were because none of these questions have easy answers, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what we're going to be up to on this podcast is talking about um, all of those kinds of questions, the funeral services industry, uh, the role that it plays, the role the law plays, the role reform movement uh, plays, And then hopefully sparking some discussion and uh, helping people think through some of these issues. Because bottom line, as Liam said, society's got to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Cool. Okay, thank you so much, Liam. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Well, I want to thank my son, Liam Sherman, for joining me today to help set the stage for the podcast. I also want to thank some creative people whose work is showcased on the podcast. Rebecca Morrow, who came up with the name Death at Sec. James Lake, a.k.a. Silent James, who designed the Kick-Ass logo, and David Childers, who performed the music in this episode, along with my son, Riley Sherman. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up for you. Some episodes will all talk about a particular aspect of the law or the development uh, and the history of the American law of human remains. We've also got interviews with Dan Isard. He's a financial services and management consultant for the funeral industry, a very well-known consultant who can talk to us about where the industry is today and where it's going. I'll also be talking to Caitlin Doty, the New York Times bestselling author of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Tales from the Crematory and this year's From Here to Eternity. Uh, she's the founder of the Order of the Good Death and uh, the death positive movement. Got a lot of other interviews with really interesting people uh, coming up on deck, but I also welcome your suggestions, your ideas and your questions. So please uh, take a moment and go to the website www.deathatsec.com, and click on contact button on the front page, and feel free to leave your suggestions, your comments, uh, and your questions, and we'll try and tackle those in future episodes. Thank you for joining me today. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at deathatsec, and please check out the website and show notes at www.deathatsec.com.